Hello, this is Brother Sam, and I'm happy to be with you for this second chapter of Men of God, A Man's Blessing. You know, when I was growing up, I loved doing things to compete with other guys. I was a fast runner. I loved sports. But something happened when I was in middle school, or rather, something didn't happen. I was a late bloomer. Puberty came to me pretty much at the end of high school. So it became harder and harder to keep up with other guys in sports. I fell behind, and I didn't get to experience or participate in the kind of culture that many men experience through sports. Fast forward, when I was in college and after college, I found it hard to be around men, strong men, men who had convictions and passion. I felt uncomfortable around them. They seemed to have something that I didn't have. It wasn't until I found Christian Brotherhood, Christian Fellowship, that I began to understand that every man needs to make his peace with his identity not only as a man, but as a father. This chapter talks about our experience as men. It starts very much with our bodies, but it takes us forward into fatherhood. I hope it inspires you, and I invite you to think about how you understand your own identity and your future role as a father. Let's begin. Chapter 2, A Man's Blessing A Sensitive Subject What's the worst you've ever been hit in the nuts? There's a grim solidarity for men when we see a guy go down on the playing field because he took an unexpected shot to the groin. Yeah, you can share a story right now if you want to. You probably thought of one right away. Why? Well, it's hard to forget that. We can laugh about it. But when we're in the moment, if we're the unfortunate dude, there is nothing to laugh about. There's a scene in Band of Brothers, the HBO series about Easy Company during World War II, that illustrates what I'm talking about. While in combat, a shell explodes beside a sergeant named Lipton, who takes a piece of shrapnel right between the legs. When the medic gets to him, he's conscious, and the two men make eye contact. No words are needed. The corpsman rips open the bloody pant leg and quickly reassures the sergeant about the state of his balls. Lipton sighs his relief. When men see this scene, we laugh. Why? Well, we get it. When we're hit below the belt, we know it's about more than our nuts. It's where we live. There's a truth to this that we need to understand. Our identity as men is tied to our genitals. It's, it's in our patterns of speech, right? When we say, a guy did something ballsy, we're not just admiring his courage, we're admiring his manhood. Like, we're assigning that quality, as well as his identity, to a specific part of his anatomy. Does it strike you as strange? I mean, his testicles have very little to do with his courage, and yet that's where we locate it. Here's my point. We're not wrong. Back up. We got the basics in the last chapter. Men and women come from God truth. We share important similarities, most notably that we are made in the image and likeness of God. Amen. We're also different, which seems like a controversial statement today, but biology backs us up. So, we're picking up where we left off. That's why we start out talking about our testicles. Beginning with our bodies, we're tracking on the next obvious question. If God made us different as men and women, what exactly is that difference? As in, what's so unique, what's so special about your identity as a man? I'll give you the answer first. 
What makes us special as men is the internal vocation of fatherhood. All of us will be fathers. You might be a father of a family with natural or adopted sons and daughters. You might be a spiritual father in a vocation as a priest or brother. You might fill the role of fatherhood in other ways as well, as a teacher, a mentor, or a coach. But all men will be fathers, and deep down we know it. Returning now to our sensitive subject, what's with all the freaking out over our family jewels? Like I said, balls don't make us brave. Do they make us men? Some guys think so. They try to prove themselves as men by their sexual exploits. We all know them. What do you think? Is manhood and sexual activity connected? As in, the more sex you get, the more manhood you attain? You know what you're supposed to say, since this is a Christian group and all, but be real. It's not hard to see why some men think that manhood and sex go together. Even if you agree they're not right, you might also agree with this statement. They're not totally wrong. This is the part where I go out on a limb. Not assuming you're coming with me, but here goes. It isn't sex that makes us men, as in the sexual act itself. But for sure, there's still a connection. What makes us men is fatherhood. Here's how. Sex makes babies, we know, but we don't always see the other side. Sex also makes parents. Ready or not, sex turns a man into a father. Why are we so protective of our privates? I think on some deep-down level, it's because we're not just protective of our manhood. We're also aware of our future fatherhood. Now, this is not to say that fathering a child and fatherhood are completely the same. That's like saying firing a gun is the same as winning a war. To be a father is connected to our physical capacity for sex, but really it's so much more. So, yeah, while reproduction is not the only thing that makes us fathers, it's a good place to start. Our fatherhood is bound up in our bodies as men. To say, though, that having sex or making a baby is the full definition of manhood and fatherhood, you'd have to be nuts. Fatherhood is about something much bigger. Here's the key word. It's about legacy. Return to Sergeant Lipton. In that fearful moment, seeing the blood spreading around the wound, his only thought would have been that his groin was ground beef. Later, though, when he was recovering, he would have had more time to think. For men today, our relief might be more immediate, like the good news is we can still have sex. But for Lipton's time, a man would have connected this with a wider future, with the hope of having a wife and kids, even grandkids. In short, he would have been thanking his luck and most likely his God that one piece of shrapnel didn't cut him off from the happy family he had in mind. Again, my point, he wouldn't be wrong. We call that wider future a legacy. We need to understand more about that particular legacy given to every man, and I mean every man, that we call fatherhood. Legacy. What do we mean by that word? A father's legacy. Legacy is what you leave behind. There are many kinds. A legacy can be financial, like an inheritance or a bequest. It could be an honorable life, like we see in Sergeant Lipton and the men of Easy Company. On the other hand, it could be a shameful or unworthy legacy. Those are not what we're looking at here. We're talking about your legacy as a father. What will you leave behind as a father? This legacy is not way off in the future. 
It's something you're working on right now. Long before you're dead, your legacy begins to build, so you need to know what it's about because it's very important. For some men here, our fathers have not left something for us. If that's you, you know how empty, how painful that is. The wounds experienced by the soldiers of Easy Company are nothing compared to the wound of a son who gets nothing from his father. We don't want to do that. We want to leave something for our sons. What do we leave? How do we go about it? There are three things a man gives that become his legacy. A father's blessing, a father's commission, and a father's mercy. We begin with the blessing. The first legacy, a father's blessing. A father blesses his son. Think of that. He says by his words, his gestures, his attention and affection, you are my son. You are the delight of my heart. And so I want to bless you. In the Bible, blessing isn't just a prayer. It's a word, a prophetic sign, a lasting gift. When a son is blessed by his father, he experiences being given a gift. It remains with him all the days of his life. A blessing. It's the first legacy we leave behind as fathers. Either we have blessed our sons or not. My son, you are the delight of my heart. As Father Philip Merdinger, the founder of the Brotherhood of Hope, says, when a man knows his father thinks that of him, he can face down lions. Another part of a father's blessing is approval. Oscar de la Hoya was called the golden boy of boxing after he won a gold medal in the 1992 Olympics in Barcelona. One sports writer summed up the fighter's greatest struggle. Quote, Despite all the publicity, all the perks, all the cash, all the women, all the wild-eyed adoration that de la Hoya has heaped upon himself since he became the golden boy, one thing has been withheld from him. Not once, he says, has his father Joel given him any kind of approval. Not once has his father ever told him he'd done a good job. Not after he won the gold medal. Not after he won the world title in 1994. He says, I, I tried to understand him, but couldn't he once have said to me, you did a good job? The writer ends, tonight he will go into the boxing ring for many reasons, but one of them is very personal between a father and a son, Unquote. Oscar de la Hoya lost that bout. To this day, he's still trying to restart his career. Sad, isn't it? So the legacy of a blessing is also one of approval. A father says to his son, you did a good job, I'm proud of you. Not, you did a good job, but no qualifications or disclaimers, just approval. If you do that to your sons, if you say to them, you are the delight of my heart and you did this or that well, without any, but you could have done better. You will bestow one of the greatest legacies a father can give his son. This video clip is a great example. It's a hunter guiding his son to take down a large buck with a bow and arrow. Clay, you're a monster. 
Wait, that's awesome, dude. Holy crap. I am so proud of you. <laughs> Do you know what you just did? You smoked a freaking monster. Oh, yeah. Oh. Hey, look at her. <laughs> look up there at me. You don't get no better than no, that. Thank you, Lord. 20 yards. Are you kidding me? You freaking dropped me, dude. That is unbelievable. He's down. The Second Legacy, A Father's Commission. When a son stands on the threshold of a defining moment, a major life direction, he needs something more from his father than just approval. He needs a commission. He might be going off to college, or starting his career, or getting married. A father's commission isn't so much about the task at hand or the choice being made. It's about the man himself. The father says, son, you're ready for manhood. You don't know everything yet, sure, but you're ready to take this on. In the Bible, we see a great example of this in King David. At the end of his life, he says to his son Solomon, in effect, you will succeed me on the throne and you will do well. That's the way a father commissions his son. He sends him out into the world and says, you're going to do well as David did. Solomon, in fact, became king after David. And for a while, he did very well. For a while. When a father commissions, he says to his son, I charge you. Will you be ready to do this? It might be on the occasion of your son's marriage or the day he enters religious life. Maybe your son will become a priest. You say, I commission you, go, do it, and do it well. It's very sad when a man receives no commission from his father, when all he hears is, well, you know, do your best, that's all you can expect. That's not a commission. Some men pursue their vocations in the teeth of their father's disapproval, like a seminarian whose father told him, look, if you're not going to go out and get laid every weekend, you're not a man. True story. What kind of a sentence is that in a young man's ears? What does that say about the way his father thinks of him? One day you will say to your sons and to your daughters, but it's especially necessary with your sons, go now, do the thing you're called to do, and I'm there with you. You'll make mistakes, it's okay. You may fail, I failed, but I commission you. To bestow this is a noble legacy for a father. The third legacy, a father's mercy. We've all heard the story of the prodigal son, which we've also called the parable of the merciful father. What does the father do? He welcomes his son. St. John Paul II observes that the father never forgot that he was the father of this son. So, when the son returns after making serious errors of judgment, the father, who had not ceased to be his father, shows him mercy. Quote, the father's fidelity to himself is totally concentrated upon the humanity of the lost son, upon his dignity. This explains above all his joyous emotion at the moment of the son's return home. Unquote. A father shows mercy when his son errs, makes mistakes, goes off the rails. If you've ever been shown mercy, you know the power of it. But if you've never experienced it, if you failed without receiving mercy from your father or a father figure, you know that pain. 
When the relationship works right, a father's mercy restores a son to the fullness of his sonship. King David had many sons, but his relationship with one in particular didn't go well. That son was named Absalom. Absalom killed one of his brothers in a fight, left his father's house, lived for a while with another king, and eventually tried to usurp his father's throne, taking up arms against David. When that failed and Absalom was dead and hanging from a tree, his father heard about it. You'd think he'd rejoice, but no. In 2 Samuel 19, David grieves, saying, quote, Oh, my son, Absalom, my son, my son, Absalom, if only I had died instead of you. Unquote. Even with a rebellious son who was a strange, distant alien, King David could show that kind of mercy. A father's blessing, commission, and mercy. These three things are essential as you prepare to bestow a legacy on those who will call you father. It's not so far in the future, not very far down the road. If there are any of these missing in your own life, no blessing, no commission, no mercy, now is the time to deal with those. Very soon this picnic is over. Very soon you're out of here. Very soon you're going to face life. What will help you become that kind of father? A man among men. Where does a man go to get what he needs to be a father? Where does he begin building his legacy? He can't get this from a woman. He finds it among other men. Two ways he finds it, by summons and by sacrifice. Some men find the company of other men uncomfortable. It's okay to admit that. Unless you had a really good experience among men when you were growing up, playing sports, for example, you probably find it awkward being with the bros. The company of women is much more inviting. They won't test you, push you, confront you, or physically knock you around the way a group of guys will. But that's not all. There's something else about our discomfort with men. What is it? Manhood is more than a biological fact. It's a summons. Every man, every group of men who embrace their manhood, who don't apologize for it or try to turn it into a joke, are a summons. They call us out of something and into something else. That might be a good thing, as in the case of brotherhood among Christian men, or a bad thing, like when a fraternity makes drinking or sex the measure of manhood. Either way, men don't leave other men passively alone. We like to fight, to wrestle, to argue, and debate. In and through it all, we're calling each other to something further. We're sharpening the blade, hardening the edge, strengthening the core. Here's the point. Whatever discomfort we feel among other men is a mirror. It's showing us something about ourselves, the way we view our own manhood. If we feel vulnerable or weak or insufficient, we shouldn't hide away from it. We want to stand in that place. That's where we start learning what it takes to become not just a man, but a father. Among godly men, we gain what some of our earthly fathers didn't or couldn't provide. We feel it first as inner discomfort. What we feel, in fact, is a summons. The second place we gain what is required for fatherhood is by sacrifice. We lay down our lives for each other. The kind of deep trust we see among men who have been in combat together, who have experienced life and death side by side in war, points to this sacrificial nature of manhood. We become ourselves fully when we lay down our lives for our brothers. 
There are men you know within your faith community who can be older brothers to you. By their own emerging gift of fatherhood, they can show you the ropes, encourage you, and tell you, more in actions than in words necessarily, you have what it takes. These men can also pray with you and ask the Father in heaven to do for you what he did for Jesus, to speak that word that every son needs to hear, quote, This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased, unquote. When a man hears that in his heart truly and deeply, he will never be the same. And as your own manhood matures among your brothers, your own legacy takes shape. With younger men, you are doing what you will one day do with your sons. You lay down your life for them sacrificially. Something as simple as words can make a difference. By encouraging them, for example, you break the pattern of put-downs so common among men. Deliberate daily choices like these serve to build up a younger brother rather than tear him down. You're communicating a father's blessing, not paternally, but fraternally as an older brother in Christ. A Living Witness of the Father One of the towering figures of fatherhood in modern times was St. John Paul II. In his life we see so much of what we're describing here about manhood, fatherhood, summons, and sacrifice. If you've ever seen film clips of him, especially from the early days of his pontificate, you know that he projected fatherhood with power. Young people flocked to him by the millions, which delighted him to no end. He once wrote in a book called Crossing the Threshold of Hope, in youthful joy, quote, is reflected some of the original joy God had in creating man, unquote. In that same short work, John Paul II recalled his own father's blessing through the gift of a prayer book and the urging to recite daily a prayer to the Holy Spirit. The Pope recalled, quote, my father's words played a very important role because they directed me in becoming a true worshiper of my heavenly father, unquote. The legacy bestowed on St. John Paul II by his father enabled him in part to courageously attend underground seminary during the Nazi and then Soviet occupation of Poland. It was a death sentence if he was discovered. With his brother seminarians, he grew in the gift of fatherhood. In time, he took on the role of cardinal in Krakow under communist rule and fearlessly resisted the party's encroachments. As pope, his personal holiness and political activism precipitated the fall of communism, this according to the last leader of the Soviet Union, Mikhail Gorbachev. What a legacy! That's what happens when a father blesses his son. When there's no blessing, John Paul says, something else happens. He says this about sin, particularly original sin. He writes, quote, Original sin attempts to abolish fatherhood, destroying its rays which permeate the created world, unquote. He saw this at work in the atheistic worldview of communism. We see it today in our own prevailing culture, this effort to relativize and diminish fatherhood. When there's no longer a father, the strange logic seems to go. There's no longer God the Father. Our Internal Vocation a father is one who blesses, who commissions, and who has mercy. If you decide that is to be your legacy, you're going to place yourself directly under God the Father because you know that is your internal vocation. Whatever vocation you might have in life, to be a married man, to be a celibate brother, to be a priest, the interior vocation to each man who accepts it is to be a mouthpiece and a representative of God the Father. Let's be clear. God is not called Father because He is like an earthly father. It's the other way around. 
earthly fathers are called to be like the Father in heaven. As St. Paul says, quote, For this reason I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. Unquote. Will you be faithful to your internal vocation as a representation, a voice, a presence of God the Father like John Paul II was? Even bent over in old age, young people still came to him by the thousands. Why? When you're with your father, a father who delights in you, there's a joy like no other. You love it. To answer this summons takes courage, brothers. It calls for every man to confront the emptiness in his own heart, some place in himself where he has not received either a blessing or a commission or a mercy. We are in this battle together. We want to deal with this in ourselves so that when the time comes, we can do for our sons what is needed to confirm them as they claim their own manhood. We owe them this legacy. We owe them our very best as men and as fathers.